Coming up today, how Shanghai is rewriting the rules of Chinese censorship, and we explain why Americans need to eat less cows. You're listening to the Wired podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Matt Reynolds, hello, Amit Koala, hello, and Morgan Mika, hello. This was the week when billionaire tweeter Elon Musk lined up 19 new investors to help fund his $44 billion takeover of Twitter. The money comes from the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Qatar, a Saudi Arabian prince, Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison, and the crypto exchange Binance. This was also the week when Spain's government said the phone of its Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, had been hacked by Pegasus spyware. He joins a growing list of people in European politics who have been targeted by the software which is made by Israeli company, the NSO Group. That list includes French President Emmanuel Macron, Catalan pro-independence figures, as well as government critics in Poland and Hungary. This was also the week when space startup Rocket Lab successfully caught a booster rocket with a helicopter as it fell back to Earth. This is part of its search for low-cost ways to reuse launch vehicles. The pilots had to quickly release the rocket into the Pacific Ocean after catching it, though. And it was finally the week when we found out that the number of flying insects in Great Britain has plunged by almost 60% since 2004. And this was according to a survey that counted squashed bugs on people's licence plates. So you had to look at your licence plate and get a little grid and count how many dead bugs there were in that, you know, in that little uh, space in c- compared with 2004. And yeah, it's gone down by 60%, which is not good news. I was trying to come up with some bug pun, but I guess it is just it is just bad news, isn't it? There's nothing funny to say about lots and lots of dead bugs. Although, Amit, I'm no scientist. Why would you want to catch a rocket with a helicopter? Yeah, this is a really good question that wasn't really answered by any of the stories I read about this uh, this feat. I think they're just experimenting with different ways to reuse rockets. So, obviously, one of the big costs of space uh, launching stuff into space is the cost of having to build a new booster rocket every time you want to go up. That is something SpaceX has sort of solved to a certain extent with their reusable uh, kind of launches. Uh, this way, I suppose, if you can catch it with a helicopter, you don't have to send the crew out to the Pacific Ocean to try and find your booster rocket um, in amongst the waves and maybe it would save money in the long run it doesn't seem like a viable long-term solution though i agree i agree feels like maybe something that they had a meeting and everyone was encouraged no idea is too stupid bring along whatever ideas you've got and someone maybe quite senior said we could catch them with helicopters and then they felt compelled to do it well props to them for actually making it happen i'm impressed yeah, I assumed the photo I saw of it was fake, but it was not. Um, remarkable. Matt Reynolds, you've already depressed us with one animal fact. Can you depress us with another one? This isn't depressing. This is, this is good. I like this fact. So, right, <laughs> it starts on. off sad. A quarter of a billion years ago, a mass extinction wiped out around 95% of all the species on Earth. So that was bad news. But one of the few survivors was an animal called Lystrosaurus, which was a dog-sized hairy lizard. And Lystrosaurus 
absolutely took off when everyone else was dead and it suddenly became the most common vertebrate on land. It was so common that in some fossil beds, more than 90% of all the vertebrates on land are this one kind of animal. And it's really funny. Um, yeah, it's, some people describe it as a pig lizard. Some people say it's a kind of dog lizard and it looks really stupid and it kind of burrowed into the ground and scientists <laughs> think that it managed to survive and managed to be so successful because it just loved walking everywhere so when things got a bit rough it would be like let's walk over there and yeah for for some for a few million years the world was populated by these pig lizards and it was a beautiful time and then they all died like pig dog lizard bear rat things it's cute tusks kind of scrawny it, it looks robust right there's a reason why it was able to hang on in there it sort of looks like an iguana, but with like a hamster's face or like a gerbil's face. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's very fair. Um, pause the podcast if you're listening and head to your favourite search engine, L-Y-S, Trosaurus, Lystrosaurus. Um, well, as you might know, I've got a three-year-old, so I've spent quite a lot of time reading books and watching TV programmes about dinosaurs. I think there was a BBC series a couple of decades ago in which Lystrosaurus was one of the stars amongst... Lots and lots of big bad dinosaurs. There was this weird rat thing that lived in burrows and kind of had this weird trotting run. Um, but his fascination with um, dinosaurs has sent me down a number of quite strange Wikipedia holes. And I reckon that mammals, ancient mammals, are actually way more fun than dinosaurs, having extensively studied the area. So I want to share one of my favourites, which is Deodon which I think means something like horrible tooth. And it lived about 23 million years ago. Not a lot is known about it, but what I like about it is it's basically a really, really, really giant badass pig. Two meters tall at the shoulder, three meters long, huge, terrifying teeth. So if it, if it was standing next to me right now, it would tower over me and look like a big buff pig. Just seems made up. But it's real. James, can I ask how uh, how do you spell Deodon for the listeners so we can go look it up? <laughs> uh, it is D for Delta, A for Alpha, E for Echo, O for Omega, D for Delta, O for Omega, N for November. Deodon. It looks terrifying. Okay, I'm looking at a picture. Yeah, yeah it yeah it's it does it has that thing where it has a image of a human superimposed next to an image of a yes. in this case deodon and it is huge imagine seeing a pig a horrible looking warthog thing except its mouth was at the height of your head that's terrifying yeah i i, I quite like how in the popular imagination today it's just been made to look really buff it's almost got a six pack in in some of the uh, <laughs> in some of the pictures, um, which I like. It's just quite funny. Um, please do send in your favourite dinosaurs or ancient mammals, podcast at wired.co.uk if you are so inclined. Amit, what did you learn this week? I learned that no one who is congenitally blind has ever been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And this is something that's baffled scientists. They think that somehow the condition of being blind from birth protects you against this particular um, mental health issue, uh, but they don't know why. It's really, really interesting. No theories whatsoever. It's just a complete mystery. Some theories that schizophrenia is linked to the visual system, I guess, is this is what they've um, observed. So it's sometimes associated with certain uh, 
changes in blink rates and like retinal um, phenomena as well. So it's clearly that there's something to do with vision uh, as a sense that, that contributes to schizophrenia, but no, uh, no concrete answers. Exceedingly strong facts this week. Keep it up. All right. First story this week is about the Chinese city of Shanghai and how a weeks-long lockdown two years into the pandemic is creating a game of cat and mouse between frustrated residents and overzealous censors. Morgan, tell us some more. Right, so on April 5th, Shanghai, which is China's financial hub and a city of 26 million people, went into a total lockdown. So this means right now the city is entering its fifth week of very intense restrictions, although officials have actually hinted today, on Friday, that an end could be in sight. But basically the rest of China has been watching what's been happening in Shanghai very closely because they're worried that this could be a model for other cities that are struggling to get their COVID cases down. Beijing, for example, has already seen restaurants and gyms closed as they try to prevent a situation where they also have to impose a Shanghai-style lockdown. This is all part of China's ongoing zero-COVID or dynamic zero-COVID policy, which basically means it's still not quite trying to eliminate COVID, but basically trying to keep cases at zero or as close to zero as possible. And this is happening at a time where the rest of the world, for better or worse, has decided to live with COVID. And with more than two years into the pandemic now, and Beijing's policy, the zero COVID policy, is coming under increasing pressure. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Now we're really starting to see kind of COVID policies diverge. So kind of where European countries are hoping that enough of their population are vaccinated to mean that the coronavirus can spread through communities without causing massive damage. China is still kind of pursuing this zero COVID policy, which means in in communities they want to eradicate every single case. That's their aim. So some people argue that this policy is necessary because China's vaccine rate among its elderly population is lower than in the UK, for example, and maybe the healthcare system. There's suggestions that the healthcare system wouldn't be kind of prepared if all those elderly people were who are unvaccinated caught COVID. But still, the policy has come under a lot of criticism for the impact it's having not only on China's economy, but also on people who are forced to live under these quite restrictive lockdown rules two years on from the pandemic start date. Um, But China's ruling Communist Party has basically kind of batted away this criticism. It's doubling down on its approach. Yesterday, they vowed to unswervingly adhere to the zero COVID policy. And that's likely to mean more lockdowns, not just in Shanghai, but elsewhere too. And as we saw earlier in the pandemic, where lockdowns were commonplace across the world, not all lockdowns are equal. And these lockdowns in China are different from what we might think of as a lockdown. Yeah, so, I mean, lockdowns have common threads. So, I mean, in Shanghai, it's similar in the sense to the one that we had here in London, where people are told not to go outside, office workers do their work at home, um, and offices and schools are closed. But one of the major differences is that communities have to undergo mass testing. And if people test positive for coronavirus, they have to go and stay in these sprawling quarantine centres. So Shanghai's residents have been reporting these centres can be really dirty with overflowing toilets, that there aren't enough staff to look after people who are really sick or have pre-existing health conditions. And at the start of lockdown, if your child tested positive for COVID, but you didn't, that would mean being separated and the child could be sent to a quarantine centre without you. 
And, and then also what's different is the problems people have been facing under these lockdowns have, have, have been slightly different to what we faced here. So some people have complained that family members have died because hospitals wouldn't treat them, even if they were at the hospital, without a negative COVID test. And another major issue is that Shanghai's residents say they've really struggled to get enough food. So supermarkets and restaurants have been shut. So that means people have been forced to rely on government deliveries or kind of really stretched online grocery apps. And so that means the supply of kind of essentials like vegetables or just kind of enough food to eat has been quite unpredictable. And particularly that food distribution issue in some of these differences between what a lot of the world experienced during lockdown and what Shanghai is experiencing during this lockdown are quite extreme, right? Not being able to access food is quite an extreme situation to put people in. And that's been really testing for residents of Shanghai. And many of them have turned to social media, as you found out this week, Morgan, to vent their frustration and at times almost their desperation at the situation they find themselves in. Yeah, exactly. So I think around the world, people have been kind of captivated watching this wave of discontent flooding out of Shanghai and onto kind of shiny Chinese social media networks. So people have been like really desperate. They're using platforms like Weibo and WeChat to to put up text or audio posts, basically pleading for help for themselves or for their relatives. And one video that has emerged as a kind of microcosm of these complaints, and it has been kind of like rapidly spreading across that Chinese internet under the title of The Voices of April. So this video basically combines aerial shots of Shanghai with audio recordings which claim to be made by distressed residents. So in one, you can hear one man pleading for his sick father to be allowed to go into hospital. In another, you can hear children crying in quarantine centres because they've been separated from their parents. And in another one, you can hear residents shouting from their compounds, basically asking the government to provide them with supplies and this video went kind of hugely viral I mean people I spoke to were estimating that its reach ranged from kind of four to five million views and there was this sense that it captured this kind of intense frustration people in Shanghai were feeling like they were kind of under, under this lockdown kind of what they were up against really. And it's an individual example of a wider trend of a situation in Shanghai that seemingly Sensors are struggling to get under control and this one individual video proved so problematic for sensors that they couldn't keep a lid on it. So officials in China want to control the flow of information online and off. There's nothing new about that. But the popularity of this video and other posts that have been made around this lockdown have made it almost impossible to stop. Yeah, so China has one of what's credited as one of the world's most advanced online censorship systems, which is often called the Great Firewall. And this system is thought to kind of combine a mix of government censors and also content moderators who are employed by China's different social media platforms who are basically tasked with taking down content that the Chinese government considers illegal. So to give a sense of the scale of this system, back in 2013, state media said that around 2 million people were employed to track content posted online. And researchers say that's system has only become stricter since then, implying that even more people might be employed. Um, But obviously, it's quite opaque. 
Um, but anyway, so the Voices of April video went viral kind of in spite of this system. So although censors managed to take the original video down, which was posted by someone using the name Strawberry Fields Forever, people on Chinese social media kind of refused to let it die completely. So they started reposting it on their own accounts. When those posts were taken down, they kind of got more creative trying to dodge the censors' methods of detecting the video by reposting it up and down. They embedded QR links to the video inside Facebook film posters they overlaid the audio of all those people kind of letting out their frustration onto different images and they're essentially trying to protect this content by disguising it what you're describing here is a fascinating game of cat and mouse but ultimately china wants to stop the circulation of this kind of content so what else the censors trying to do to clamp down on free speech or the circulation of hugely viral videos that are critical of this lockdown as Shanghai enters its fifth week of these really extreme conditions? So other things they've been trying to do is they've been promoting hashtags that kind of try and deflect criticism by kind of pointing to America's human rights deficit instead. I also spoke to one person who had received a phone call, who'd received two phone calls actually from his local police station after he reposted content from Chinese social media onto Twitter. He said he wanted more people to see it and uh, Twitter is considered to be kind of a bit more out of reach of Chinese censors. So there is a sense that they are still trying, they are taking content down and they are also trying to deflect attention away from critical content focused on Shanghai's lockdown. And there's been a few moments through the pandemic where and you mentioned stuff that was going viral on Chinese social networks breaking out onto Twitter because people want to get even wider attention. There's been a few moments through the pandemic where that's happened and questions have been raised about China's handling of the pandemic, about the conditions that people are living through under lockdown restrictions. So is it fair to say that this is part of a recent trend of China's censors struggling to contain ways of outrage that have been fueled by viral social media posts? Yes, I think what's really interesting is that this the Shanghai lockdown has received a lot of attention, but it actually this this instance of kind of outrage flowing onto Chinese social media actually follows two other very recent examples where Chinese social media just refused to let a controversial what co- might be considered a controversial subject die. So at the start of the pandemic, censors also struggled to erase this discussion about a doctor who had a doctor in Wuhan who had tried to warn the country about early cases of COVID, but he was actually arrested for threading rumours. But basically, that same doctor ended up dying of COVID. And after that, two hashtags began trending on Weibo. One was the Wuhan government owes an apology. And another was we want freedom of speech. So both of those, uh, those hashtags attracted tens of thousands of views before the censors managed to delete them. And these outbursts of anger are not even exclusively focused on the pandemic. So there's another really interesting example in January 2022, when there was another wave of fury kind of erupted on social media after this short clip of a woman chained by her neck in this small village appeared on Chinese TikTok equivalent Douyin. And so the platform ended up closing the account of the original poster and, and also Weibo censored related hashtags. But the outcry, again, it just wouldn't die. People just wanted to keep talking about where this woman came from, kind of what she was doing, chained in this kind of small hut, and it kind of escalated into this countrywide conversation about human trafficking. People started sharing stories about how their female relatives or classmates had been abducted or disappeared and what might have happened to them. But 
the whole point of the story that you reported this week with Will Knight on Wired's business desk is that this isn't China's censorship system failing. The experts that you spoke to said it's actually the censorship system working as intended. Yeah, so all the experts I spoke to said this is a really interesting time on Chinese social media, but we shouldn't look at these episodes of online outrage in a way to justify an argument that Chinese censorship is kind of starting to crumble, as quite a lot of people have suggested as the kind of Shanghai lockdown has has gone on. So instead, people I spoke to said the censorship system has actually got stronger under Xi Jinping's regime. So they suggested that what we're seeing with these online outbursts is just kind of this cat and mouse game that exists in any censorship system. So as censors get stricter, people get more creative to find ways to express themselves in the face of that censorship. So, for example, one academic I spoke to described how there is this whole new language on Chinese social media used to criticise Xi Jinping, where he's never referred to by name because that would be instantly censored. But instead, people talk about him using phrases like the big one or number one. And ultimately, China could stamp out these really, really viral moments of outrage. But it isn't. So why isn't it? Yeah, I think that's quite an, a kind of disputed part of this of this issue. I mean, it's interesting if you compare conversations that the censors have failed to wipe off the internet to other subjects where they might be considered to have succeeded. So when the coronavirus first arrived in Wuhan, for example, I was told that it was difficult to upload any video onto Chinese social media platforms. So that's quite a strict a strict censorship policy. And then if you look kind of at discussions around the Uyghur Muslim minority group in China's Xinjiang region, that has really been heavily clamped down upon. But the Shanghai lockdown is still being discussed and social media users are still in a position where they can wrestle with censors. So I think that raises a lot of questions. I mean, is it the fact that Shanghai is a much bigger city, 26 million people, that the volume of the post is overwhelming the censors? Or is it the case that the censorship includes kind of space for pressure releases? So as long as the frustration is directed in the right way, sort of at local government officials and not the central government, does it make sense to give people some space for criticism to prevent kind of wider backlash against the bigger system? It's a fascinating and quite open-ended point to end on. I don't think this is such a complicated area that we can't come down on one side and say, ah, this is the system working as intended or this is the system being overwhelmed. But certainly what we're seeing in Shanghai is this game of cat and mouse. And it will be interesting and potentially really alarming to see what happens if cities like Beijing go under lockdown as this zero COVID policy in China continues? Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with us about that story or anything else that we talk about on the show this week. And we will, of course, include a link to Morgan and Will's piece in the show notes. For our second story this week, Matt Reynolds has been looking at the one big thing you can do to stop climate change. That's right. So once again, I am talking about beef, which seems to be something of a recurring topic for me. And this is because 
the climate impact of our diets is something that comes up a lot. There's loads of news stories saying you should go vegan or you should cut out this or you should do this, um, you know, thing, make this change your diet to, you know, improve its climate footprint. But what's kind of weird is that you don't hear a whole lot of government targets around food and around beef. So not in the same way that governments talk about, oh, I don't know, rolling out electric vehicle charging points or switching to solar power or installing new wind farms. You don't get any near anywhere near the same kind of you know directed or kind of targeted interventions that you get around these other areas and this was really highlighted last month with this big ipcc report so that's the intergovernmental panel on climate change so this kind of big un group of scientists that come together and do these landmark reports on climate change and this report was looking about about how we might mitigate the effect of climate change in the future or actually mitigate it right now and so there's a whole bunch of things that appear in this specific chart which basically lists these are the highest impact things that we can do and up there right at the top is switching to wind and solar energy so quite like an obvious thing that you can do now a little lower down there's something that gets onto this diet point and there's this phrase that they use this report uses and it says let's shift to balance sustainable and healthy diets now if you've been reading the news around climate change and the impact of our diets, that phrasing might strike you as a little vague. And in fact, it really is. So an, an earlier version of that report included a recommendation that people switch to plant-based diets. And that's because when we talk about high-impact diets, we're really talking about meat and we're talking about beef in particular. But what happened is that this advice was watered down in the negotiations after lobbying from countries like the US and Brazil and Kenya and other countries that either have big meat industries or have a big interest specifically in cattle production and beef production. And so what ended up happening is this reference to plant-based diets was basically removed and it kind of it was relegated to a single mention, a footnote on page 43. And this is a really big issue because it means that we're perhaps not talking about diets and the impact they have on the environment in as direct a way as we could be. I can understand why governments don't want to put a focus on diets, not least because of the big meat producers like the US and Brazil, as you mentioned, Matt, but also I guess it speaks to this sort of idea of clamping down on people's freedom to eat whatever they want. And I guess some governments are maybe a little bit uncomfortable with that. They'll they'll nudge you perhaps, but they maybe won't bring in the sort of same uh, incentives and, and, pun- and punishments that we've seen for perhaps other forms of decarbonisation around transportation and things like that. But the truth is, the uncomfortable truth is that you, the inconvenient truth is that you can't talk about food's climate impact without talking about meat, right? Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to do the numbers bit. We'll get this out of the way up top, just run you through some numbers that really convey the impact that meat and beef in particular has on our diet. So food production as a whole accounts for around 26% of all global greenhouse gas emissions. And the biggest chunk of that comes from livestock. So if you take all uh, human caused greenhouse gas emissions, I think about 14.5% of all those emissions are associated with livestock livestock production. So when we're talking about food, we're really talking about this quite specific part of the, um, you know, part of our diets. If you look at something, you know, measurement per gram of protein, beef has around eight times the greenhouse gas emissions of something like chicken and around 25 times that of tofu. So, and this is all to do with how um, beef is produced. It uses a lot of land and crucially, as cows are kind of growing, they burp up methane, which has a very strong um, warming effect and other animals don't don't do that in the same way but the impacts of beef go beyond 
just emissions. The impact on land is really big too. So almost 80% of all agricultural land is used as pasture or to grow crops for animal food. And the expansion of pasture for beef alone drives 41% of annual tropical deforestation. So I think that that 80% figure is actually almost mind-boggling. So 80% of agricultural land is used as pasture or to grow crops for animal food. So when you think about farmland and how humans have transformed the world, the largest portion of that by far four-fifths of it is transforming it as a way you know as a place to either grow food for animals or just for animals to graze. That's kind of an amazing stat and as you said Matt so about a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions come from food production and although obviously our diets kind of contribute to global warming it's really only a small bit of those diets that is having the biggest effect and that's making the biggest difference and actually it's not just a small bit of our diets it's a small bit of the diet of a small number of people so if a small number of people make a relatively small change it might have a big difference yeah exactly and really you know there's one way to look at that which is like this is terrible and that's really terrifying another way to look at that is that's great we know exactly the part of our diets that we can change or we can change how we produce that we can actually make a really really big difference so we know that if you can cut out these high impact parts or you can reduce the emissions from these high impact parts you can make a really really big difference to the the you know carbon footprint of your diet and there's the reason why we're talking about this today is there was a new study in the journal nature that came out this week that projected what would happen if we tried to make a dent in this really high impact part of our diets and basically the scenario these authors came up with is they said well if by 2050 everyone gradually swapped 20 percent of their beef um, and, and it was actually other ruminants as well, so it doesn't doesn't just include cattle. If they if they swap twenty percent of their beef intake for mycoprotein, which is fermented protein, most commonly in the UK, it's corn. There's a few other producers as well, but it's it's really you know stuff usually from fungi, which is corn. They said if we swap twenty percent of uh, this beef intake for mycoprotein by 2050, what will that do to deforestation and what will it do to emissions and other associated things? And what they found is that. In the, you know, the other example, in a world where beef demand just kept going up, deforestation rates would more than double by 2050. But if people swapped 20% of their beef for mycoprotein, these deforestation rates by 2050 would be half what they would be versus that previous scenario. So basically, you don't have any you know, major difference in deforestation. So if things stay as they are, deforestation is going to go up because demand for beef is going to go up and we're going to need to use more of that land. If you can just take 20% of that demand away and swap it for something else, you'll find that um, you don't need to expand this cropland, you don't need to expand this pasture land and those forests can stay standing. So two questions. First, can you remind us what a ruminant is and why they um, have such a big impact on climate change specifically? I think you might have hinted at this earlier. And second question, why did they go for 20%? That feels like a slightly arbitrary figure. Why not 50% or 100% beef reduction? Yeah, so ruminants are basically animals that chew the cud. So, you know, cows, they chew grass and then they the grass kind of goes through their stomachs and it goes in this special stomach um, and they kind of sick it up and then they chew it again and, you know, they, they digest it again. So, you know, cows... Great diet, really, really nice way of digesting. Lots of other ruminants include um, goats and sheep, buffalo, all animals in these kind of, um, yeah, these kind of group of species, you know, giraffe and other animals like that as well. Basically, any animal that eats grass and and chews cud. So it doesn't include things like um, pig or poultry or fish. None of those are ruminants. And the reason why ruminants have a much higher... um, 
uh, yeah, and a much higher uh, greenhouse gas emissions is basically because what they're essentially doing is they're kind of fermenting this grass in their stomach. And as you ferment stuff, it produces gases. In this case, it specifically produces um, methane, which has a over a certain amount of time has a warming impact that's around you know, 20 or 30 times greater than carbon dioxide. So it has this you know, very concentrated warming effect, especially over a short period of time. And they basically burp it up and produce all this gas. Also, the problem is with cows is that you need to raise them for a relatively long amount of time to bring them to slaughter. The longer they live, the more time they're chewing the cud, the more time they're producing this methane. If you have something like a chicken, you can you know, bring it to slaughter actually very, very quickly. So in some ways, they're more efficient. So that's why ruminants, um, you know, have these kind of big emissions. And when we're talking about ruminants, it does include lots of different animals, as I said, but beef really is this, you know, big one. That's by far the major contributor to this category. And so, so your second question was, you know, why did these researchers concentrate on this 20% figure? Because you know, I'm sure our readers have listened or you know, heard of lots of studies and read lots of articles that have said, if you cut out meat altogether, if you cut out 50% of meat, if you cut out 100% of meat, this is the impact. And, you know, they're totally right. You know, the more meat you cut out, the higher the impact in terms of the reduction on your diet diet's carbon footprint you'd have. And we've seen that before. There are plenty of studies that advocate for bigger reduction. So there's this quite famous one a few years ago, I think it was 2018, called the Eat Lancet Report. And this put together a diet that would be good for both planetary health and individual's health. And they recommended that people eat no more than 98 grams of red meat. So that includes pork, but it's it's mostly beef and lamb. Um, 98 grams of red meat per week. And that's a little less than a single quarter pounder. Now, to put that in perspective, the average American eats almost seven times that amount of beef alone. So annual beef intake in America is around 37 kilos a year. So something like the Eat Lancet Commission is advocating for a really, really massive um, reduction in the red meat that people are eating. And I spoke to the scientists behind this new nature report and I said, well, you know, why didn't you concentrate on these other scenarios? Because they did model some other scenarios as well. And he said, well, a 20% reduction in beef seemed much more realistic. You know, he said, well, plausibly, I can imagine that people might switch 20% of their beef intake for something else by 2050. It wasn't a super optimistic scenario like the Lancet Commission, which is asking you know, for a sevenfold reduction in beef intake. And so these scientists all, did also run these two other scenarios in which mycoprotein replaced 50 and 80% of beef, beef consumption by 2050. That's 50 and 80% per person, by the way. So it's not um, looking at someone in America you know, taking on a bigger chunk of reductions than to outweigh other people in the world. And in those two scenarios, deforestation and the associated emissions with deforestation were even lower. So it's totally true to say that if you keep producing beef production and beef intake, you will keep getting these environmental gains. But what they found is that the biggest shift is when you go from zero to 20. And then these shifts are much harder to get in terms of motivating people to do to move from 20 to 50 and you get proportionally less of a benefit. So really the the takeout that these scientists wanted to say was, look, if you even, you know, even doing this small shift, like removing a fifth of beef from your diet, you can actually make a really big impact on deforestation. You don't need to go all the way to 50% or 80%. You can actually do quite a lot, even with a relatively small change in your diet. Yeah, so as you say, 20% doesn't feel like a lot. And actually, many people have probably done this already through movements like Veganuary or Meat Free Mondays over the last few years. But one of the problems that you mentioned, or that you identified when we were talking about this earlier, is that 20% 
reduction in in red meat intake isn't the same for everyone right yeah exactly so I mentioned just earlier, the average American eats around 36, 37 kilos of beef a year. Other countries like Australia and Brazil have, you know, beef intakes that are extremely high. But the global average is much, much lower than that. It's more like 9.5 kilos. So really a 20% reduction for the average American diet, I think that's around seven kilos, seven or eight kilos. That's almost equivalent to the average global per capita consumption of beef already. So when we're talking about where emissions in our diets are spread, this really isn't a kind of um, evenly distributed um, problem, right? It's not an evenly distributed curve. And this is exactly the same thing that we talk about historic emissions. If you look at historic emissions, you know, very largely come from North America, from Western Europe and, and parts of the developed world. Um, so, you know, again, it's the same story here that you know, some people's diets have really, really big impacts and some people's diets have a pretty negligible impact. And there's lots of other ways that you can think about achieving this 20% reduction in beef intake. You could say, well, everyone in America should halve their beef intake and then it'd still be double the global average, but at least they've way taken, you know, they've, they've more than taken care of um, their contribution or at least their potential reduction contribution to this global issue. Or you could say something like the average daily calorie excess in America is is around a thousand calories. A lot of people eat just way more calories than they should be eating. And a lot of those calories come from red meat. It comes from um, ruminant meat. So you could say, well, if you just take all those excess calories out, maybe you'd solve a lot of this problem. And if you did that, you would manage to get a situation where you're not forcing people in oh, I don't know, you know, Kenya or in, or in Ethiopia that have very, very low beef um, intake and, you know, lamb intake and, and goat intake, you wouldn't be forcing them to reduce their pretty modest consumption already. Because I think that it's clear and when you speak to scientists that, you know, this isn't a, a problem that is equally shared around the world. And it's something that you might want to focus on specific areas to actually have that real impact. Uh, yeah, ultimately, I guess it's going to come down to individuals, right, that we're not going to there's not a world I can see where there's kind of quotas imposed on how much red meat people can eat. So it's going to be individuals making decisions that they think are going to have an impact. And that's one of the reasons I like the study because it's pragmatic, right? 20% feels realistic and achievable, particularly if you're eating 37 kilos of beef a year, like cutting that down by a little bit is going to make a big impact and it's not going to cause you too much trouble. But the swap that they suggest, which is going from kind of sirloin steak to mycoprotein, is going to be a big step for some people. And I can see that being quite an appetizing step for some people. So the question I had was whether swapping beef for chicken might have a similar effect or for pork. Uh, So basically, I want you to essentially rank the meats, Matt. What's the the best and the worst uh, that you can do for the environment? Well, you're totally right to say that swapping beef for chicken would definitely be an improvement in terms of land use and in terms of emissions. So um, growing stuff like soy for chicken field doesn't require anywhere near the land conversion that it, it takes to grow cattle because it basically doesn't need land for pasture. And also chickens eat less. They're more efficient at turning food into body weight. So that's why chicken has a smaller uh, emissions and it has smaller land use associated with it as well. So it's totally true to say swapping beef for chicken would lessen this impact. In fact, in this example, it's almost like mycoprotein just stands in for a lower carbon form of protein. You could equally envision that, you know, imagine that we would have soy or tofu instead, or maybe, as you said, some kind of lower carbon meat, fish as well. And actually, 
that scenario that you posited, Amit, that might be more realistic in some ways because we're already seeing this already. So in countries like the UK and the US, we're already seeing a fairly significant, although pretty slow, swap from beef to chicken. So in some parts of the world, it does look like we've hit peak beef. So in the US, for example, I think if you go back to around 2002, 2003, per capita annual consumption of beef was around 42 kilos per person per year. So that's already dropped pretty significantly by six kilos. I think it's a similar story in the UK that generally this big trend is meat, in meat is we're going away from red and dark meats and we're going more towards lean meat and poultry. I think that has a lot to do with health. It has partly to do with environment, but it's this kind of wider trend in our food tastes. There are a couple of problems with that. And one is that this is just not happening anywhere near quickly enough. So a reduction from 42 kilos per person to 37, 36 kilos per person is good. But it's not quick and it's also way, way above where it needs to be. And also, it's not exactly clear how far down that reduction goes, right? If you, if we can just imagine that uh, chicken is going to take a bigger and bigger market share or whether that might actually flatline at a certain point. So one, this isn't happening anywhere near quickly enough and we don't know how deep enough this um, swapping process is going to happen. And secondly... This is going to be counterbalanced by rising populations and incomes in other parts of the world. So thinking about Africa in particular, Latin America, Southeast Asia, this is going to keep driving beef demand up. Basically, as people get richer, demand for beef goes up because beef has always been one of the most expensive and what most um, you know luxurious meat. So what you see is that even if parts of the world are reducing their beef intake, this is basically overtaken or more than compensated for by population trends. And actually, that's a big dynamic that this study brought out, because it basically said a lot of the past deforestation has happened in the Brazilian Amazon. And that's happening you know, right now, you know, the Amazon is the kind of center of deforestation for beef. But a lot of this future deforestation they predicted, it's probably going to happen in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's because that's where a lot of this future meat demand is going to come from. And that means you have some of these localized effects. So these new ecosystems are going to be um, you know, decimated in terms of trees and in terms of biodiversity. So you also have to think about how um, this is, yeah, again, it's going back to that point that this isn't going to happen evenly everywhere, else, everywhere in the world. Um, back to your question about ranking these meats, I thought instead of me telling everyone what meat has the highest emissions and what meat or other form of protein or whatever has the lowest emissions. I thought we would play a little game, a little bit of prices, the price is right, but this time with carbon emissions. So I'm going to give you two uh, foodstuffs and you have to tell me which one has the highest greenhouse gas emissions This is per kilogram of food products. I'm going to give you two um, foodstuffs. You tell me basically which has the highest emissions. So we're going to start off with... Let's say this is a nice easy one. I'm going to say beef versus chicken. I mean, I've, if if we've all been paying attention for the last 15 minutes, the answer is beef. Okay, everyone agree? Yeah, definitely beef. Yeah. Okay, you both agree. Um, good. So that's that's right. So beef basically has uh, greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram of 60 uh, kilograms of uh, CO2 equivalents versus poultry which has six so 10 times you know really really big difference 
these figures, by the way, are slightly flexible. Sometimes it's six times, sometimes it's ten times. It depends exactly how you count it, but it's, you know, there's, there's a kind of big difference. Let's get a little bit more difficult here. Let's say poultry meat versus farmed prawns. Which is worse? Hmm. It's, it's got to be poultry, right? Yeah, I vote poultry. Am it? Yeah, I think so. That, that makes intuitive sense to me, poultry. No, you are incorrect. It's prawns. I guess this is the purpose of the game, isn't it? Exactly. So prawns have a surprisingly high impact. You know what? I'm not 100% sure why that is. It might be to do with the way they are farmed. I think also uh, quite often mangrove forests are removed to farm um, prawns Mm. and that has a big climate impact. But maybe if listeners want to email in to tell me a bit more about prawns, I'd be very happy to hear it. So prawns would it have also an... go on. Would it also have something to do with, um, from knowledge of supermarket labels, it's like prawns are always, always, always flown in from the other side of the world or shipped in from the other side of the world. So there's a huge shipping impact as well. Uh, James, you have talked about one of my favourite food emissions issues, which is how much transport actually has an impact. And so I'm looking at this chart from this great website called Our World and Data, and it splits up the impact between um, farming and feed and packaging and land use change and, and transport. And if you look at prawns, actually transport makes a tiny, tiny slice of their emissions. So uh, looking, it's a bit difficult to look at the chart, but you know, maybe 1%, maybe even less than that. And actually, the, the really amazing thing is that that's pretty typical for food stuff. So transport usually makes up a tiny, tiny amount of a food's um, carbon footprint. And that's generally because the vast majority of food stuff are shipped. Um, they're usually frozen and they're shipped, or you know, if it's fruit and vegetables, they're not necessarily frozen, but they are picked before they're ripe and then they're shipped. It, there's relatively little food um, globally that is actually flown. Some fish from Norway or Pacific salmon sometimes is flown if it's never, never frozen. But actually, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So I'm glad you brought that up, James. Basically, transport usually makes up a very, very small amount of um, um, your impact. So it's much more important to concentrate on what you're eating rather than where your food came from although obviously there's other reasons you might want to eat local to support local farmers or things like that um all right let's get back to our quiz let's say oh let's pick something different here let's say um farmed fish versus soy milk fish is more has more emissions i think I think it's going to be soy milk. I'm I think soy is quite soy bad, milk. isn't it? Is it, it soy, is. soy milk is the worst of the alternative milks, right? Oh, that's interesting. Almond. Yeah, yeah. I think there, well, there are lots of different measures depending on whether you're looking at water use or land use or emissions. I can say Morgan is correct here. Fish has five kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram. And soy milk has 0.9. The reason for that is that farmed fish, um, a lot of the time, well, farms have their own associated emissions, but a lot of the time they're also eating, they need to be fed um, other fish. You know, you need fish meal, so you need to fish fish to feed fish. And this means that their feed generally has quite a big impact. Let's do one last one to um, to round this out. Maybe let's go more difficult. We're going to say peas versus Nuts. Nuts. I say peas, based on nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I think nuts. It is 
When we saying which has the higher or which has the lower, we're saying which has the higher. Higher. Which has the higher. Yes. Okay, yeah. higher, yes, good. It was peas. But to be fair, they're both pretty low, so eat what you want. Peas have 0. 0.9 uh, greenhouse gas kilograms of CO2 equivalent. Uh, per kilogram and nuts have 0.3 although some nuts um may even have a uh negative climate impact because of you know basically how they grow really the takeout from this oh no wait i'm gonna do one extra one because i think this is a good surprise one um cheese or chocolate why is it a surprise (laughs) (laughs) you've given given away you've given away the game here matt so we we would think it was cheese right because because there's more milk involved and that means it's definitely chocolate because of habitat destruction and yeah yeah chocolate milk okay although don't forget we're talking about emissions specifically here are Um, they equal is he trying to triple bluff us what do you think you know what i would say morgan let's say they're equal so cheese is 21 uh kilograms of co2 and Chocolate is 19 kilograms of CO2. Although I would say, and Amit and I were discussing this when we were doing our podcast notes, maybe chocolate comes out quite badly because this is kind of per kilo and you wouldn't necessarily eat, you know, 200 grams a kilo and 200 grams of chocolate in one go, whereas you might of beef. So, you know, chocolate has very, very high um, carbon emissions because of land use change but most of the time you're eating quite a small portion of chocolate um cheese on the other hand that has quite high emissions because it comes from those cows again those cows are probably burping up methane and they're living for a long time if they're um creating cheese so anything associated with cattle tends to have quite a high impact yeah that's an interesting point and that's why they don't tend to do these things in terms of kilo of food because obviously like eating a kilo of chocolate is not giving you the same nutritional value as eating a kilo of beef same with peas so you might eat a kilo of peas and yeah you don't have as many emissions but it's probably not going to actually give you the nutrition that you need for as much as a, a kilo of chicken might for instance yeah exactly and that that's exactly why usually these charts compare this in terms of per gram of protein or per 100 grams of protein because you've got different parts of your diet that do different things and I, actually this is, is really why I like this study and why I like what this illustrates, this study about 20% reduction. Because I think it really shows that, you know, no matter what you swap it for, actually you can have a big impact of diet on your diet and on its you know, carbon footprint if you just reduce that worst bit of it. So you don't have to swap it for mycoprotein. You have to swap it for corn. You could swap it for tofu. You could swap it for chicken. You could even just not eat that much beef. A lot of people probably eat too much beef that is good for them and certainly too much that that is good for the environment so maybe you could have vegetables instead so yeah the study author that i spoke to said i don't he didn't want this study to be around everyone needs to switch to mycoprotein it's the best thing i think a lot of um communication around climate is quite prescriptive it says you need to be doing x you need to switch from beef to you know whatever but actually he was basically saying well look if you reduce this if you eat too much, you can have vegetables instead. Maybe don't eat it. Maybe swap for chicken instead. So there's actually all kinds of things you can do to reduce your impact. The, the main thing is, is you are actually reducing that worst bit. It's food for thought. Uh, and Matt's got a great story on Wired.com digging into some of the intricacies of this story. Um, we'd also love to hear what you think. Have you swapped beef for mycoprotein? Do you have any good corn-based recipes you'd like to share with us? Let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk. And Matt, there was also something in the inbox this week. Yes, there was. So there was a, there was an email. Sorry, Amit caught me while I was just drinking a glass of water there. So I was very, very smooth, but now I've spoken about it. Um, Mike 
uh, wrote in talking about our discussion of solar panels. So this was a little while ago. I brought on a story that was talking about people that had, um, you know, put solar panels on their roofs because of the rising electricity prices. Mike said, sadly, unless solar panels cover an entirety of a roof, they look ugly as rectangular gaps are left for chimneys and wide margins of the original roof are usually visible at the four edges. Is it too much to ask that any gaps and the bits around the edges are filled with non-functioning dummy panels so that the whole roof is uniformly covered in glossy black panels so it sounds like mike doesn't like the look of solar panels which i, I think is fair enough I, I actually personally i when i look at solar panels i think that is awesome I, I think well there's someone that's doing something to reduce their impact on the environment and to me it maybe what it symbolizes is maybe more than actually it's kind of aesthetic influence but i know that um there are solar roof tiles so you can get solar you know, roof tiles essentially have solar panels built in with them. I think they're very expensive, but, you know, that's one aesthetic option. And um, I, actually, I'm, I'm interested. What does everyone think? I, I, I like the look of solar panels, to be honest. Do, but do you think they're ugly, James? There's something slightly confusing about having solar panels that have to make way for a chimney on a roof. Um, yeah. So I guess on as the, as the decades pass and older houses and chimneys become a thing of the past, maybe, or are remodeled, We'll end up with nice, clean, tidy roofs, one side of which that faces the sun will be neatly, uniformly solar. So maybe we're just living through a couple of decades where old and new must intermingle in a messy way. They are my thoughts. Yeah, I like that, actually. I like this idea that we have these chimneys that speak to a past where we were burning fossil fuels in our home, you're causing indoor uh, pollution, but they're right next to these solar panels, which are kind of the future. So I don't know, maybe that's me. I, I kind of like this messy, chaotic mixing of histories. But yeah, I'd be interested if anyone else has any, any uh, maybe maybe people have tips to make their solar panels look nicer. I'm not sure. Maybe fill some stuff in with marker pen. I don't have a home, so I have no idea what people do. <laughs> <laughs> or a roof. Or a roof. Um, I don't have a roof, that's right. Yeah. We, uh, we ask a lot of people, so we've asked for their favourite dinosaurs, their favourite ancient mammals, their favourite microprotein recipes, and tips for making solar panels look sexier. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show. The podcast inbox has been a little bit quiet in recent weeks, but thanks to Mike for writing in. Please do get in touch. We love hearing from you. That's it for this week, then. We will be back same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.